Clothes make a big statement, don't they? Now, Queen Elizabeth II is by no means a controversial dresser, right? She's always proper. She's always patriotic in her attire. But she, nonetheless, she sparked a bit of a fashion flare-up back in 2017 when she gave her speech to Parliament. What was the culprit? A blue hat with a prim circle of yellow flowers. On the surface, the Queen looked her usual reserved self. But social media and the twittering classes erupted in speculation that a subversive royal act was taking place. Because to many people, the Queen's hat symbolized the European flag. It had distinct shades of blue and yellow. Was she, people wondered, showing her support, personal support for Britain's EU membership? Was she having a job at an unpopular government set on Brexit? Of course, Her Majesty was not saying anything. And when the crown, or when the palace was asked point blank about the hat, the palace remained silent because the crown takes no official position on politics. I don't know. Maybe the hat was a symbol. Or maybe the hat was just a hat. Either way, it speaks of fashion's power to make a statement whether it's intentional or not. See, fashion, it's how we can express ourselves. It's, it's a way that we can show the world who we are. People dress up. They dress down. They wear any type of clothing that allows them to share maybe something of their personality, their individuality. I mean, even rejecting fashion statements is a fashion statement in itself. And then there's us. You probably haven't come here to Fitzroy this morning with the first thing on that fell out of the wardrobe. You look good, Fitzroy. You look really good. The choice of what to wear was probably made very carefully. And when it comes to special occasions that we attend, maybe weddings or graduations, parties, or even coming to church, we want to look our best for each other, don't we? But here's the thing. It won't always be easy to be our best for each other. You see, the church comprises of people, and where you find people, you're going to find problems. And where you find problems, you're going to find pain. And in the church, in our church family, in our faith community, our relationships with each other are not always going to be mountaintop experiences. There will be times when we find ourselves in the valley. It'll be hard work at times, demanding personal sacrifice, even self-denial. And here in Colossians chapter 3, this short passage of scripture that we're thinking about this morning, Paul points out a way that the friction and the tension can be kept to a minimum. But before we get into that, 
let's pause just for a moment and consider the context, the situation into which this letter that Paul has written has been sent. So imagine yourself and you're at the Colossian church. Imagine yourself at a meeting of the Colossian church. You're assembled in the home of one of the elders. People are sitting around. Maybe some are sitting on chairs. Maybe some are sitting on the floor. Maybe some are standing. A new letter has just arrived from the Apostle Paul. And in a day without Bibles, this is a major event. It's about to be read. And there's an air of excitement. There's an air of anticipation in the room. But there's also a ripple of anxiety and discomfort. There's maybe some tension in the air. And you can feel it. And you look around, because there sitting in the room are Philemon and Onesimus. Philemon was one of the leaders in the church. And one of his slaves had stole from him and had run away. And now, here at church on this day, sits Onesimus, the runaway slave, who has been sent back to Colossae by Paul. And he's been sent back a believer in Jesus. And Philemon, he's also received a letter from Paul, a personal letter. And we can read his letter in the New Testament as well. And the church would have heard his letter too. Paul wants Philemon to take Onesimus back into his house to accept him as a Christian brother. And the question is, how is this going to happen? How is the Christian community in Colossae going to respond to this? How do they deal with the potential conflict in their community? How do they be the best for each other in the light of what's going on in their midst and going on in their world? Keep that picture in mind as you think about this letter, as you read this letter, as you listen to it being read. Colossae was probably the least significant town that Paul wrote to. It was located 100 miles east of Ephesus, is what, we now, what is now Turkey. And there were many, many religious options in Colossae. There was Jewish options and there was pagan options. And apparently some in Colossae thought that Jesus should just be kind of added into the mix. They lived in a a culture which belittled the sufficiency of Christ and their hope. And here in our Western context, we're in a secular society which regularly scoffs at the Christian faith. It's not that dissimilar from the context that these Colossian Christians find themselves in. Many Christians in the West have become increasingly uncertain of their faith, and as a consequence of that, they hold it uncertain. But for the Apostle Paul, Jesus was no add-on. Paul points out in this amazing letter that Jesus is the creator and the sustainer, that he's the head of the church, that he deserves our full undivided attention. 
Because according to Paul, Jesus came to liberate not only individuals, but all of creation from the powers of darkness. And here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, we jump in. And we notice right away that this passage begins with a therefore. With a therefore. And one of the things that I learned in Bible college was when you see a therefore in the Bible, always ask what it's there for. And uh, it takes us back into all the things that Paul has been saying in the letter up until this point. It's Paul's prayer that God will encourage these believers in Colossae to live with a spiritual perspective in their lives that will reflect the transforming power of Jesus. Paul's challenging these believers in Colossae to turn from their past as if their old past lives were dead and to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus, on the goal of a new life hidden in Jesus. Therefore. And then he reminds these Colossians that they are God's chosen people, set apart and dearly loved. When I was a kid, some of you will remember this too, when I was a kid, we'd play football or some other game, and all the kids would line up, right? And then there'd be two people, two captains for the two teams, and they would start to pick people for the teams. Not if you've ever experienced this. Are you with me? And there was always a feeling of relief if you were chosen first. Or if you were one of the first people chosen by the team captains. You'd feel really proud. But when it got to the last one or two people, well, they usually maybe weren't as liked as some of the other kids or they weren't as good at sport as some of the other kids So inevitably, these two captains would start arguing about who would have these last kids on their team because neither of them wanted them. And if you happen to be one of those kids, you know the feeling of what that felt like. Some of us know exactly what that felt like. It doesn't ever feel good not to be wanted, not to be chosen. But the really good news is that that isn't God, isn't how God treats us. Isn't it good to know that God wants you on his team? That before the foundation of the world, God looked through time and he saw you and he saw me and he said, I want her, I want him, I'll take her, I'll take him. He didn't leave you to last. He chose you before you even lined up. You're God's chosen people. We all long to belong. And we all flourish best when we know that we're needed and that we're loved. So hear this good news this morning. You're, you're loved. You belong. You belong to Jesus. He's chosen you. Pretty much everyone you come into contact with is going to have an opinion of you. But I'm learning that the most important opinion is God's. And based on what we read here in Colossians chapter 3, he thinks pretty highly of you. God has chosen you. God has set you apart from himself, for himself. And just as God has loved you dearly, 
He's chosen you for this new life, a new life of love, a life of love for God and a life of love for each other. You see, for Paul, it just wasn't enough that these believers in Colossae believed the right things. Right belief has to produce right living. The gift of salvation demands that we put into practice the character of our king. And just as we take off all of these old, worn-out clothes and strip away certain attitudes and actions because they're reminders of our old selves, it's not enough to just strip them off. We must put on something new. And in the light of that, and in the light of his declaration that you're chosen by God, you're set apart, you're dearly loved, he gives three orders, three positive orders in this short little passage. First is get dressed in a new spiritual wardrobe that God has picked out for you. And forgive and love. Look at verses 12 and 13. Dress in the wardrobe, according to this is the message version, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, discipline, be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense. Clothes do make a statement. And this new spiritual wardrobe that Paul's writing about here looks suspiciously like the life of Jesus. Compassion, kindness, gentleness, humility, putting up with each other, forgiving each other, and above all, loving each other. These are the ways of Jesus. This is what characterized Jesus' life and his ministry. And as we follow Jesus, the ways of Jesus must become our ways too. And these are wonderful virtues. But they can't be manufactured by our own good intentions. They're implanted in us by God's Holy Spirit if we persistently ask for them. And the truth is, there are going to be times in our lives when we need every one of these virtues to see us through periods of turmoil and unease. I think that if these virtues were to become a natural part of our daily lives, a natural part of our characters and our personalities, then our relationships with other people and our families would become much more rewarding than we could ever dream possible. So let me briefly comment on these virtues, this new spiritual wardrobe that Paul points out that God has picked out for us. Compassion. How heartless the world is today, right? How indifferent it is. But compassion goes against the flow. It's that capacity for feeling what it's like to live in someone else's skin. I love how Friedrich Buechner put it. It's the knowledge that there can never really be any peace and joy for me until there is peace and joy finally for you too. Oh, how we need that tender-hearted mercy in the world today. Kindness, thoughtfulness, and consideration of each other. Unselfishness, gentleness, graciousness. A determination to treat each other with extraordinary dignity and respect. I'm going to come back to kindness in a moment. Humility. When we talk about humility, we're not talking about false modesty. Rather, an accurate self-perception. See, it's the opposite of arrogance or an inflated ego. 
As we think about humility, what do we think of? Who do we think of? We think of Jesus again, our great example. And it should be our goal then to walk as Jesus walked, to let people see Jesus in us. When they look at us, what do they see? Let it be an accurate reflection of Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. Humility. Gentleness. Gentleness. Meekness, as sometimes it's translated, does not mean weakness. It doesn't imply cowardice or an inability to make decisions. The Bible commentator, theologian William Barclay defined it as strength under control. Gentleness is strength under control. This kind of gentleness is about trusting God's goodness and God's control in every kind of situation that we face. Gentleness means a reliability. It means freedom from sudden changes of mood. Barclay said it enabled a person to always be angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. Now that's a virtue that we all need in our relationships as we face the ups and downs of life. And then there's patience. What about patience? Or long-suffering. Literally it means long-burning. Something that burns a long time. How easy it is To have a short fuse. So often we make snap judgments. And we later regret it. There will be times. In our lives when we need to be long. Burning with one another. We all need that restraint. That enables us to bear injury. And and insult without. Resorting to retaliation. I think all of that then. In verse 13 leads to forgiveness. Forgiveness. The point here is that Christ has forgiven us so much that it won't hurt us to forgive somebody who stepped on our toes. When you have a grievance, Paul says, and you will, go out of your way to forgive each other. You think that's easy? You've never tried doing it. It's hard work. We're to forgive others in the same way that Christ has forgiven us. Forgiveness has got to mark our relationships. But of course then there's one virtue this passage mentions which is more important than all of these. And that is love. Verse 14. Regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic all-purpose garment. Never be without it. Over all these garments, and we could think of them as a set of undergarments, we're to put on the overalls of love. It holds it all together. It gives our new rig out unity. Love is that motivation, has to be that motivation behind all our words and actions. Love is the badge. It's the distinguishing mark of the Christian. But like the little child who said to God, Dear God, It's got to be very hard for you to love everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family, and I can never do it. It won't come easy. It's going to require some effort, determination, all our energies, but it's worth it. Resolve to intentionally 
communicate love. But let me just briefly pick up one of these virtues and give you some encouragement for the week ahead. Kindness. Kindness. In our world right now, it really does seem that there is an abundance of hatred and a lack of kindness. And if we ever needed a little bit more kindness in our world, we need it right now. Would you agree? Aesop once stated that no act of kindness, no matter how small, is ever wasted. We've been reminded this morning that we're supposed to clothe ourselves with kindness. Something that we put on. Do you think that it's really possible to clothe yourself in kindness and wear it all day long? Do you think that it's really possible for kindness to be something that filters into everything that we do? Well, it is. So here are three simple ways that we can wear kindness in the coming week that I hope you can hold on to and remember. Kindness in our words, kindness with our actions, and kindness with our attitude. Kindness with our words. Show kindness with our words. More than 600,000. That's how many words the Oxford English Dictionary says is in the English language. And if you add in the scientific and technical terms, it's well over a million. Over a million words available to us. That's an awful lot of words, folks. I don't know about you, though, but when it comes to me, why is it then, why is it then that I seem to choose the wrong word so often? You know? The word that doesn't say what I mean. Or the word that stings someone else. Do you ever find yourself choosing the wrong word and wishing you had said something else? Words are powerful. I love what poet and activist Dr. Maya Angelou said about words. She said this, Words are things. Someday we'll be able to measure the power of words. I think they're things. They get on the walls. They get in your wallpaper. They get in your rugs, in your upholstery, on your clothes, and finally, into you. Words are pretty powerful. It's incredibly easy to be unkind with your words, saying the first thing that comes to mind that can result in a lot of hurt feelings and a lot of regretted words. Words can so easily become instruments of destruction. But in the week ahead, how could we show kindness? We could turn our words into instruments of encouragement. It can be easy to say kindness, share kindness with our words by taking that little bit extra time to think about the words that we speak before we say them. Let's ask ourselves this question about our words. Are these words kind? Are they truthful? Do they bring love and light? Clothe yourself in kindness with your words. Clothe yourself in kindness with your actions. Our actions should be kind. 
That might seem like a very obvious point to make, but ask yourself, do you take time to think about whether or not your actions are done in kindness? Because in the busyness of everyday life, kindness can quickly become something that's shoved aside in favor of convenience. Because sometimes it's just not convenient to be kind. It's easier just to be selfish. See, most of us have me at the center of our lives, but God gives us a whole new word. It's the word you. He tells us to stop looking inward and start looking outward. So this week, as you're going about your normal life, your normal routine, take the time to purposefully make sure that your actions are kind. Don't think about, don't only think about how your actions affect you, or what people think of your actions. Think about how you can exhibit kindness with your actions. And then do it. Look for those indiscriminate acts of kindness that you can commit over the coming week. And last thought. Show kindness with your attitude. Show kindness with your attitude. This can be a tricky one. Think about it. When someone is really getting on your nerves, when they're pushing all your buttons, is your attitude towards them kind? What about when someone is unkind to you? Or what about when things don't work out the way that you wanted them to? Does your attitude show kindness? Well, there's only one person who has complete control over your attitude. And that one person is you. So take control of it. When a situation happens and it makes you feel irritated or selfish or any other unkind emotion, take a deep breath and choose to react with kindness. Because our attitudes affect the way that we treat people and circumstances. Scriptures are filled with great wisdom Commands about our attitudes. Respect, for example. Show respect for everyone. Love your Christian brothers and sisters. Fear God. Show respect for the king. First Peter chapter 2, verse 17 tells us. Look, chapter 6. Treat others as you want them to treat you. Respect. Or what about inclusion? Galatians 3, verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And there's grace. Romans 5, 20, 21 reminds us the more we see our sinfulness, the more we see God's abounding grace forgiving us. Before sin ruled over all men and brought them to death, but now God's grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Attitudes like grace and inclusion and respect We need those. They need to mark our relationships. So as we leave here shortly and as we, God willing, enter a new week, every single day we're going to be faced with a choice. Be kind or unkind. Your words, your actions, your attitude, these are all things that you'll have to choose kindness in. 
It will not always be the easiest choice. In fact, sometimes kindness will be the hardest choice. But it's the right choice. As Paul writes to this little church in Colossae, it's the right choice for this church with all the challenges that they're facing. And it's the right choice for the church here at Fitzroy. Try a little kindness. Can even change a life. Let me share a quick story to finish. Many of you have maybe heard Tony Campolo speak. A great speaker. Always so challenging. And uh, one of the stories that, that I loved to hear Tony Campolo share was the story of when he found himself in Honolulu. Tony Campolo is a sociologist, a Christian, a pastor, a speaker. And uh, he found himself in Honolulu um, on the six-hour time difference that he was facing from the east coast of the United States to Honolulu meant that he woke up about three o'clock in the morning. He had jet lag and there was nothing to do. And he, he wanted to get something to drink, something to eat. So he, he went out, but everywhere was closed. And he went up this little side street and he found this little greasy spoon diner. And he went in. And there was no booze, just this counter and these little stools at the counter. And he went up and he sat on the counter. And out came this, this guy who owned the, the diner. His name was Harry. And he had a greasy apron on and a cigar hanging from his mouth. And he said, what do you want? And Tony says, I'd like a cup of coffee and a donut. So Harry gets him a cup of coffee and, and a donut. And Tony's sitting there, 3.30 in the morning. Sipping his coffee, eating his donut. When the doors open and all these, these ladies walk in, these women walk in, they'd been working the streets, they were prostitutes. And they came in, it was the end of the night for them, and they sat down at the bar on either side of Tony Campalo. Tony said, I just tried to disappear. And he listened to them talking. And there was a girl sitting on his right, and she said, Tomorrow's my birthday. Tomorrow's my birthday. And the other girl sitting on Tony Gapolis left said, Well, what do you want me to do about that? Get you a cake. Throw a party for you. She said, Oh, you don't have to be so unkind. I've never had a birthday party. I've never had a birthday cake. And they kind of sat there for a little bit and they, they finished up their coffee and their donuts, and they left. And Tony got this idea. He called Harry over and he said, Harry, that, that girl that was sitting beside me, that woman who was sitting beside me, he said, yeah, Agnes. Tony said, Agnes said she's never had a birthday party. Would it be okay if I came in a little bit earlier tomorrow night and we decorated the place a little bit, and we had a birthday party for Agnes. And Harry said, that's a great idea. He called his wife out, and he explained to her what Tony wanted to do, and she said, oh, that's a great idea. And she said, I know, I know the lifestyle that, that these women are, are living. Wouldn't lead you to believe this, but Agnes, she's one of the good ones. This would be a great thing to do for her. She's a nice person. 
So Tony goes and he buys party supplies and they get a cake and he comes in about 2.30 in the morning and he decorates the place and gets balloons up and birthday banners and then they wait. And about 3 o'clock in the morning the doors open and then walk all these ladies again, all these women and everybody is kind of like hiding and they all jump out and they shout, Happy birthday. And Agnes just stands there in shock. And then they bring the cake out and it's got the candles. And they said, Agnes, here's your birthday cake. I blow out the candles. Happy birthday. And she just stands there looking at the cake. And she blows out the candles and then she says, they said here, cut the cake, Agnes, cut the cake. And she looks at the cake and then she says to Tony, she said, would it be okay? Would it be okay if, if I don't cut the cake just yet? Can I take the cake home and show my mother? You see, I've never had a cake like this. And Tony said, okay, she Okay, if you want to. She said, just leave, live two doors down. I'll be back in a moment or two. And she left and the doors swung closed. And there was a stunned silence in this little greasy spoon diner. Nobody knew what to say. And then Tony said, he just felt it was the right thing to do. He said, let's pray. And he prayed. He prayed for Agnes. He prayed that God would change Agnes's life. And when he'd finished his prayer, Harry, the diner owner, leaned over the counter and he said, Campolo, you told me you were a sociologist. You're no sociologist. You're a preacher. What kind of a church do you belong to? And Tony Campolo said it was in one of those moments when you come up with the right words to say. And he said to Harry, I belong to a church that throws parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Tony said he'll never forget Harry's response. He looked back at him and he said, No, you don't. No, you don't. Because I would join a church like that. That's the kind of church I would join. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all like to belong to a church that threw birthday parties at 3.30 in the morning for the people who need it most? Well, I've got news for us all. That's exactly the kind of church that Jesus came to create. He's the Christ who saves us from sin, fills us with his joy, who clothes us in a new spiritual wardrobe that God himself has picked out for us and who sends us to go out so that others can meet Jesus and that others can experience the kindness of Jesus and his scandalous grace. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. And as we think of these words that Paul wrote to this little church in Colossae, always be thankful. 
Let the words of Christ and all their richness live in your hearts and make you wise. Use his words to teach and counsel each other. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do, whatever you say, let it be as a representative of the Lord Jesus. All the while giving thanks through him to God the Father. Help us as we go out from here this morning into a new week to live lives of gratitude, to live lives of service. Clothe us in the spiritual wardrobe and help us to show kindness in this week with our words and in our attitudes and with our actions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.